Welcome to Sunday Morning Live. You have tuned in to the weekly broadcast. We air live every Sunday morning. You can join us by using the meeting ID that is notated on our podcast page. Now turn with me, please, to Jude. You know, Jude don't have but one chapter. Jude verse 21. While you are finding that scripture, let me ask you this. How confident are you that you'll still be a Christian? You'll still be saved in 10 years. I I, I want you always uh, to remember that ultimately God is preserving us. God is our only hope for persevering in the Christian faith. He, God is the one that keeps us. But I think all of us have asked at some point, well, shouldn't I be doing something? In other words, Christian perseverance, it's not passive, is it? What What is my part? What am I supposed to be doing in all of this? Let's turn to our scripture passage as we ponder these questions. Verse 21 of Jude, keep yourselves. That's what it said. Keep yourselves. You about to memorize a verse. Keep yourself. If you just memorize that part, amen. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday morning. We pray, oh God, for all of those names that we shared before starting the recording. We pray for each and every one. Oh God, not just right now, but we continually pray for them. Thank you for all the prayers that have come toward me as I face some health issues. But right now, God, we're praying for everyone within the sound of my voice. Oh God, that's listening on this podcast, whatever they're going through, God, work it out and let them know that you are with them and that you will get them through whatever they're going through. We thank you, oh God. We pray that you would anoint your servant. Oh God, that it will be all of you and none of me. God, we give you the praise. We give you the honor. God, anoint every word in the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. The A part of that verse again, keep yourselves. I would like to use for a topic this morning, develop good habits and your habits will develop you. Develop good habits and your habits will develop you. Oh, God. We preach so often, I know I do, about going through things and how rough life is. This Christian journey, we have come to expect certain threats and temptations from the world around us. We are also tempted by this life's comforts 
and pleasures and promises of fake satisfaction. We even accept a false morality from this world. (coughs) Many of us also anticipate we're looking for the danger. We're looking for the suffering and the sudden losses and broken dreams and persecution in various forms. But I want to bring up another threat this morning that I don't think in all my 50 years of being saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost that I've ever heard a message on. I want to bring up another threat this morning. Though we haven't heard a message on it, we're not quite as familiar with. It is just as dangerous of the other th- as the other things that we just mentioned. And that is how slow we mature in Christ. How slow we grow. And as you listen to this message, you're going to kind of hear me contradicting myself because spiritual growth is slow. But many times our spiritual growth is dangerously slow. I have talked to so many church members that even wonder if they are saved because they see so little spiritual change in their lives and they have, they're tired. They're tired of trying, tired of the daily self-denial, tired of taking two steps forward and one step back. Tired of walking on a road that seems endless toward a place they cannot see. Many Christians have become disillusioned and exhausted. So many have even sat down on the path, on the journey, wondering if they were will ever get up again. Beloved, Christian growth is slow. I don't know why the slowness of our manifestation of the sanctification that took place when the Holy Ghost first came in even surprises us. What made you think that holiness would come overnight? Probably from our high-speed culture that we live in. But it might be because of our own pride that has caused us to misjudge our power as it relates to perseverance. Listen to what Peter said. You know, big mouth Peter in Matthew 26 and 33. He said, talking to Jesus, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And we know not many days later, Peter was denying Christ. Or maybe you've heard some Christians say, and as it relates to speedy Christian maturity, that there is some secret for overnight maturity, for overcoming sin, or there's some special key which will oversimplify the complex struggle of sin. Wherever we get the ideal that the path of spiritual discipline can be quick, you didn't get it from the Bible. In the Bible, you don't see mature Christ-likeness happening in a month, in a year, or even in a decade. It, It takes a lifetime. Holiness is not a 12-step plan. 
Yeah, you got to have a plan, but there are about 10 million steps. And you take your last step when you take your last breath. <laughs> the pictures of growth that God gives us in his word. Take the long view of sanctification. I know some denominations, they, they change their outward appearance. They get rid of a few habits and they, they, they testify to being sanctified because of what they've done. Mm. The world, the word, the word shifts our expectation from hurrying up to slowing down from right away to the gradual. Now, I have said all this, and, and, and yeah, there, there, but there are some ex exceptions. There are some exceptions, but the exceptions are not the rule. Miracles take place. I can testify to this myself. There will be times when there are miracles. In other words, not all progress in sanctification happens slowly. Many of you can also testify, oh, thank God, of overnight deliverances from particular sins, even ones that bound us and we could not let go. And God gave us an overnight miracle. Some were able to put down whatever your vices were overnight on the spot and you never picked it up again. Woo! Hallelujah. And thank God for miracles, but the long view of sanctification. We cannot cease praying and asking God to do far more and exceeding than we can ever ask or think in his time. So the balance is to balance our expectation. We must not get discouraged when our daily efforts fail to yield fruit overnight, reading your Bible, praying, fasting, and going to church. Don't stop. It's like you're sowing seeds of good habits. We plant, we water, and then we keep our eyes on the harvest. Amen. On the other hand, however, the slow view reminds us that what you do today, the obedient habits that you do every day are of the utmost important. They may not take us all the way to glory at once, but we will never reach glory unless we keep on stepping. Change behavior happens one step at a time. In other words, each day, do what you're supposed to do. It's that simple. Really, I could, I could close the message out with that. Every day, do what you are supposed to do in that day. What are you supposed to do today? It may not be grand, but do it in faith relying on the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Your labor will not be in vain. Pick up your Bible today. Read your Bible today. 
Today, have your quiet time and your prayer time. Today, confess and repent. Today, serve others. Today, evangelize and plant the seeds of the gospel in someone else's life. Right now, you are sowing seeds of your future self. The godly habits that you are maintaining today will be the seeds that will bear fruit in your future self. Beloved, God commands us to rely on him and to participate in the process of our perseverance in the faith. We are not only promised that God keeps us, but we are also charged. Yes, God keeps us, but go back to our verse. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, oh Lord, this is so good. In other words, what we do while persevering is essential. Habits. The word habit appears only once in the New Testament. Listen, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now here we see the word habit first in, neg in the negative sense. In other words, don't stop the habit of going to church. But the positive implication is cultivate the good habit of Christian fellowship. And this verse is in conjunction with perseverance. It's habit and perseverance. It's, it's not about, which we do too often in today's culture, it's not about a unique one-time event, a special mountaintop high, a conference where our feet never touch the ground, but it's in the day-to-day -day routines of your regular life that brings about change. In other words, the habits you develop and sustain today will affect whether you persevere to the end or give up on the path of this life. Simply put, your habits are one of, one of the most important things about you. Yes, this is a message that is going to make us all look at what are my spiritual habits? Am I in the habit of picking up the word of God? Am I in the habit of praying? Am I in the habit of going to church? Am I in the habit of trusting God no matter what I'm going through? So how can we foster better habits and become more effective in cultivating life-giving habits for our Christian walk? For one, when we have good habits, 
It frees up our focus from distractions so that we can free our attention to what's important. And we become fully aware in that moment and still carry out our regular task each day. Good habits, starting each day with Bible reading, good habits, praying at regular points throughout the day, good habits, going to church. When we do these things, we position ourselves on God's path. Habits become our second nature and free us from being distracted by our own actions and abilities so that our attention can focus on God. For instance, when you study the Bible and pray, these good habits open up space for us to move beyond always feeling condemned, move beyond asking, what am I going to do next? And what do you want me to do? Because we hear Jesus in the book. We get to know and enjoy him through prayer. It is not the act itself of reading the Bible that warms our hearts and changes our lives, but seeing Jesus with the eyes of our heart, habits, Make space for our faith. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. Seeing Jesus glorifies our souls. And the soul that is being glorified is the soul that is persevering. Good habits help us focus, hallelujah, and keep on focusing. The power of good habits save us from the regular reconsiderating, reconsideration and the taxing energy of decision making. If you decide to go to God's word first, first thing in the morning, then the decision will be made for the rest of the day. It will be a habit. Whether to go to church or not isn't something you have to reconsider every Saturday night or Sunday morning. It's automatic. You're freeing up that space in your mind. You made the commitment, formed the habit so that you're not stuck wasting energy on some of the same decisions over and over again. Good habits protect what's most important. They keep us on track of perseverance even when we don't feel like persevering. Habits keep us on the right track even when our emotions tell us we don't want to do this because this is our habit, we will do it in spite of how we feel. Now listen, perseverance in the Christian life is dynamic. It's, it looks different based for each person based on your personal experience and who you are what season of life you're in, what time of history that you live, and the community that you live in. In other words, 
Habits are not one size fits all. Isn't that a blessing? That we are not called to live by someone else's spiritual routines. You're not called to persevere by the same habits as your heroes. Habits are personal. God gives us flexibility in how the timeless, unchanging principles of his means of grace intersect with our timely, changing, personalized habits in life. But it is your responsibility to develop godly habits in fighting this battle we call life. The key is not in whether you do things like everyone else. Stop comparing yourself to others and deciding if you're good enough. That's not the key. The key is keeping your eyes on Jesus. Now for our final point, beloved. What you desire. Mm, mm, mm. What you desire and the reward that you receive when you receive what you desired forms our habits. We, we shouldn't be surprised that God designed us that way and the universe that way. That's why some of us are in the boat that we're in of some habits we're trying to break. Because of what we desired and the reward of what that desire gave us. Mm, that's another sermon for another day. But godly habits, God, we're talking about godly habits. Godly habits are gifts that drive us to God. So that we can say with David, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words... I don't do what I do because of duty. I do what I do because of joy. Joy is the reward. Hebrews 10 and 35 says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. The ultimate goal of cultivating holy habits is having Jesus, possessing him by faith, knowing and enjoying him. He is our reward. He is the great end of our perseverance. He himself is the center and apex and essence of our great reward. Hearing God's voice in his word, having his ear when we pray and belonging to the body of Christ gets our eyes off ourselves so that we might regularly taste and see that he is good. This helps us to persevere in the faith, but it is not about what we do, it's not about what we do. Don't get it twisted. It is all about knowing Jesus. What we do puts us on the path 
of knowing Jesus. Didn't he pray? Jesus pray in St. John 17 and 3. This is eternal life that we know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The great reward that drives our habits is knowing him. The great end of our habits and all of our perseverance is a person. So day in and day out, we say, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. When all is said and done, our hope is not to be a skilled Bible reader. Our hope is not to be the best prayer in the room. Our hope is not to get the attendance award because we never miss church. Our hope is not be to be the most fruitful and mature Christian in the community, but our hope is to be the one that understands and knows Jesus, that he is Lord. And so our heartbeat in the habits that we develop for hearing every word, speaking every prayer, participating in every church service is let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Knowing and enjoying Jesus is the final end of hearing his voice, having his ear and belonging to a church body. God's means of grace and their many good expressions will serve to make us more like him, but only as our focus returns continually to Christ and not ourselves and our abilities and our habits not our own Christ-likeness. It is in beholding him. It is in seeing Jesus that we become transformed. Second Corinthians 3 and 18. It is in beholding God, the Lord, that we go from one degree of glory to another. In other words, our Christ-likeness is not the end. Our growth is not the goal. It's, it's just a marvelous effect of spiritual discipline, but it is only an effect at the heart of every habit serves just one purpose, knowing and enjoying Jesus. He is able Hebrews 7 and 25, he is able to say to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Beloved, Jesus is praying for you. Doesn't that encourage you? Jesus is making intercession for you. He has a plan 
for you. Yes, there will be bumps and bruises along the way, but it's all in God's plan. And Jesus will pray you through. What this means for us is that no matter how low or how many times you have fallen, you can stand and you will stand. And Jesus is keeping power. He keeps you as we keep his ways. You can turn to him again and again. Hallelujah. Jesus has risen from the dead. The resurrected Christ is praying for you, taking you when you feel like you have ruined all of your chances. Jesus is still saying, I can use you. Jesus is saying, I want you. Jesus is saying, I have a plan for you. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I invite you now to invite him into your heart simply by praying this prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have done many things that don't please you. I have lived my life for myself only. I am sorry and I repent. I ask you to forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for me to save me. You did what I could not do for myself. I come to you now and ask you to take control of my life. I give my life to you from this day forward. Help me to live every day for you in a way that pleases you. If you have prayed that prayer with me, hallelujah, please call me at 231-349-1046 as I can discuss with you the first steps of communion. Welcome to Sunday Morning Live Fellowship. We air live every Sunday morning on our Zoom channel. Now turn with me, please, to Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. But before we read our passage, last week we did some directional talking. We stated that we should look up. We said that we should set our minds on things above. Well, today we're going to continue with directional thinking and we are going to discover how to keep God at our center. As opposed to making all the stuff that the world offers us as our center. This, this world offers us a multitude of choices. Every week we have a new movie that's released. Every minute there's a new YouTube video a new social media update every second, and a fresh set of Instagram in images with every pull down to refresh gesture. As our center, what I mean is this, this is the age 
of the image. It's the age of our, of engaging our eyes and our ears. And we are constantly bombarded with every kind of image imaginable. So this eye-ear tension poses massive challenges for anyone trying to keep God in the center. Wow. That's, that's a huge challenge in our task that we are going to discover for today. Um, we're going to read our scripture, but before we do, I just want to make note that my son has just arrived, and he's probably going to, when he leaves, uh, going to walk in front of the camera. So you don't have to wonder who that is. That's my baby. He's going to be 40 in April. Amen. Let's turn to our scripture. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you. So as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake for my own sake I do this how can I let myself be defamed I will not yield my glory to another let us pray oh God we thank you for your mercy right now God we're thanking you for your glory that you have allowed us to share but we can only partake of your glory when we make you the center of our being. God, we pray for all those names that are on our prayer list today, and they are many. Touch everyone. Some are preparing for surgery. Some recently had surgery. Some are recovering from COVID-19 and all sorts of complications that went along with that. Some are recovering from pneumonia. Some are recovering from broken ribs. God, we are praying even for that one that fell on yesterday and ended up with broken ribs. Those that are sick, God, we pray in the name of Jesus. We pray for those that have lost loved ones. Oh, God, the difficulty of losing that one that was inside of us but is still in our heart but gone from us physically. We can no longer get their phone calls. We can no longer call them. God, mend those hearts that feel as though something has been yanked tragically and torn from their very being. Pray for those that are recovering from strokes. Pray for those, oh God, that are just going through. We thank you. Now, God, we pray for your servant. Hallelujah. Oh God, let it be all of you and none of me. Oh God, we sit down that you would stand up. We thank you for this opportunity to share your word, but oh God, open our eyes. Open our spiritual
your eyes and ears that we would hear what thus saith the Lord. We thank you, God, and we give you all the glory in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. My, my, my. I want to use as a topic this morning, for God's sake. For God's sake. So what do we mean by saying that we must make God our center? For one, let me ask you this. What is number one in your life? What is your highest priority? So much of what we put most of our focus on, it seems hard, harmless. It's fun at the time until we realize that everything we gaze upon, everything we set our mind on will eventually want something from us. Everything we make our center will make a demand on us. So what do our spectacles want from us? This, I think, is a huge reality that a lot of us fail to see. The truth is that whatever we make a priority provokes something in us in order to extract something from us. Our center asks us for all sorts of things, our time, our attention, my God, our outrage, our lust, our affections our money, even our votes. Every picture, every video, every virtual tweet brings before us needs, expectations, and desires. They're all asking for something in return. So what is God asking for in return? By being our center, does God only want us to testify about what he does? Hmm. I feel there is so much more than testifying about what God does for God being our center. I even think God being our center means more than what's going on in our churches. Making God our center is even more than about God's people. But at the same time, please don't forget that God is very much interested in his people and his church. So, as we consider making God our center, the question becomes, is God for us or is he for himself. Someone is already saying, well, of course he's for us. 
Romans 8 and 31 says what? Then shall we say in response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, God is for us, but God is also for himself. Let's look at our text one more time. God is charging his people for their rebelliousness, their corruption, their hard-heartedness, and necks, necks of steel. But God relents in his judgment, and he does so for a particular reason, and that's expressed in verses 9 through 11. Listen, over and over we hear God say, for my name's sake, for my own sake, he says it again, for my own sake, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. It sounds to me like God is for God, unmistakably. God is God-centered in this text. Uppermost in God's affection is himself. But then we have to look at the other side. God is angry, but he is deferring his anger. He's not cutting the people off, which tells us God is for his people. So what's the relationship between God being God-centered or God being for himself and God being for his people. I think the answer is that God must be at the center of our being. He must be at the center of his people, and he must be at the center of his church. If you put anything else in the center of your being where God belongs, even if it's people, even if it's the church, even if it's a ministry, your center will not hold. What's in your center? Family? Ministry? Work? Entertainment? Leisure? Or yourself? These things are not bad, but must never exist where God belongs. God enhances his own reputation. God demands to be praised. God makes a name for himself at every turn. He is angry when he is ignored or dishonored. He puts himself forward as the wisest and best of beings. He says that there is no treasure above him. He is relentlessly God-exalting. Let's look at Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. God created us for his glory. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we were created to reflect, enhance, and magnify the glory of God. 
Now, when I say we are to magnify God's glory, let me make a distinction between a telescope and a microscope. When we say magnify, you could mean to make something small look big. That's not what we mean when we magnify God. But if you use your heart like a telescope, you don't try to make something small look big. You try to make something unimaginably huge look like what it really is. That's what we mean when we magnify God. We were created to magnify God like a telescope, not like a microscope. Jeremiah 13 and 11, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. He chose them and made them, these people in this text, to cling to him that they might be his glory. Psalms 106, 7, and 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Did you hear it? He saved them for his name's sake. Why did Jesus come into the world? Romans 15, 7 and 8. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And why is Jesus coming back again? 2 Thessalonians 1 and 10, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Beloved, Jesus is coming back to be marveled at. That's why he's coming. He's coming back to be glorified. God exalts himself continually. Everything he does is to display his glory and to preserve his honor as a loving and good God. Now, someone is asking, doesn't 1 Corinthians 13 and 5 say love does not insist on its own way? You know, we got some Bible scholars here. And are you telling us that God seeks? his own glory in everything he does? How can he be a God of love if he is also self-exalting? Well, I'm glad you asked. All, think about this, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their spouse. Readers praise their favorite author. Joggers praise the countryside. Athletes praise their favorite game. Some people, especially as you get older, 
praise the weather. That's all we talk about. Some people praise how good food is, art, actors, animals, colleges, countries, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, even politicians. We praise what we delight to do and what we hold as value. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment, the expression of how good something is completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. In other words, genuine heartfelt praise is the consummation and completion of our delight in God. Praise is the completion of our enjoyment, and that enjoyment is not complete until it is expressed. God's delight is completed when we praise his perfections. Now think about this. God gives us his best. And what is his best? God is best. There's no greater beauty, no greater power, no greater wisdom, no greater love, no greater goodness no greater justice, no greater anything good and beautiful in the universe. Nothing is greater than God himself. If he were to give you all the health and wealth and prosperity in the world minus himself, you would have nothing. He must give us himself so we can enjoy him and love him to our fullest. He has to remain our center. God being eager for you to praise him is love and the essence of his self-exaltation. God is the one being in the universe for whom Self-exaltation is the most loving act. If you and I try to exalt ourselves, it would be sin. That's exactly what Satan tempted Adam and Eve to do. He told Adam and Eve, you will be like God, independent, able to decide for yourself what is good and evil. You will be able to put yourself forward as worthy of admiration. Beloved, God is in a class all by himself. He is God. He is infinitely glorious. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I got that from C.S. Lewis. So what does this mean? And this theme is from Jonathan Edwards. I don't think anything is 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 original. Someone asked me, why don't you, uh, I don't know, do something with your sermons and then for people to listen to them, they have to pay a percentage. 
I, I can't do that because I've studied someone else. Amen. I shouldn't get the percentage. I don't know anything. So most of this is coming from Jonathan Edwards. And the quote I just gave is from C.S. Lewis. So what? What does it mean? It means, first, that all the divine energy that goes into upholding and displaying the glory of God also goes into upholding that same glory is used to uphold God's people because you having joy is the highest expression of God's glory and worth in your life. <clears throat> he is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. I know I'm right. Nehemiah 8 and 10 says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Here's the second implication. The first one was that God is most magnified when we are most satisfied in him. Therefore, if you are indifferent to being satisfied in God, you have sinned. Oh, my God. So we are talking about keeping God at our center, for God's sake. So I guess the answer is more worship, right? Hmm. Can we worship the worship experience and turn the worship of God around so that we, the people, are being entertained and exalted? Church, is it really God who is at our center, or is it our experiences about God? That's at our center. What God does. How do we avoid the danger of worshiping the experiences of what God does and not God? Our flesh and the devil are so against authentic, intimate communion and engagement with the living God. We must make sure we are getting through the church service, getting through the prayer service, getting through the worship experience that we are engaging God Almighty, that we go beyond the experience. Is God at the center of our church? Or are, are, are we having church out of duty? Are we having church out of obligation? Are we having church because this is where I belong and this is where my membership is and, and I'm connected to this church and the people here? Or are we connected to God? Am I here because there is nothing in the world that satisfies my soul? the way God does. Oh, my God. And in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, at this point, some may be content 
and 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 you know I, I've heard enough. I've heard enough on this subject, and I think I understand what it means to make God our center. And 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 okay, now I know why God does what He does. But others may may I know I did may want to press a little deeper. What 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 does it mean? that God does everything for his glory and for his namesake and for his praise. Let's unpack this meaning of God-centeredness just a little bit more. First, let's look at just a few more points. The glory of God includes the manifestation or display of God's attributes and perfections. Let me say that again. The glory of God includes the manifestation. This is his glory. It, it it includes him displaying his perfections and his attributes. God's attributes, his wisdom, his power, his justice, his mercy, his faithfulness, and the majesty of his redemption are God's revealed acts. His creation, his providence, and and redemption. This is the manifestation and the revelation of God's glory. But to continue on with this, God's glory is more than just the display of that glory. It also includes the creaturely, in other words, you and I, it, it includes the knowledge that results from the display of his glory. In other words, God's got to have an audience. There's an audience for the manifestation of God's perfections and his knowledge. And, and the audience is part of the glory. If, if God's glory isn't known, then his purpose in creation is incomplete. Number three, not just the display of his perfections, not just him having an audience, but also it must include the creaturely or us loving and delighting in his perfections. It's not enough to to for us to know that God is wise. It's not enough for us to know that God is all-powerful and faithful and just. God wants us to taste it. Oh, taste and see that he is good. We must love and delight in God's perfections the same way that he does. The display of divine perfection and knowledge um, and love and delight in the divine perfections and all that these include in the glorification of God. We must experience it. God communicates his fullness to his creatures. And God has invited us to participate in his fullness through the redemption, through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can have firsthand knowledge of 
of his love, of his knowledge, of his joy, and come to exist in us. Through Jesus, we have literally become partakers of God's divine nature. And this truth, that God is God-centered, and therefore does everything that he does in order to glorify himself, hallelujah, by sharing the riches and fullness of his divine life with us. This is good news in this crazy world. When we are God-centered, we have the very foundation to remain standing when everything around us is crumbling, when we have God at our center, when we seek his glory and not the glory of this world and not the glory of ourselves, we will become satisfied and content when God is at our center. No matter what whirlwind is going on around us, we will be stable in the midst of the storm because we are most satisfied in him and his glory will keep us satisfied and anchored. If you have not received Jesus Christ, the revelation of the glory of God. God became a human being so that we could partake in his glory. All he asks is that we acknowledge that we are sinners without him and to repent for our sins and to receive Jesus Christ by faith he became one of us so that we could become like him. Don't say that you want to wait until you're good enough. You will never be good enough. We cannot self-exalt. Only God is self-exalting. Make God your center by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're ready, pray this prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have done many things that don't please you. I have lived my life for myself only. I am sorry and I repent. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died on the cross for me to save me. You did what I could not do for myself. I come to you now and ask you to take control of my life. I give it to you. From this day forward, help me to live every day for you in a way that pleases you. If you prayed that simple prayer with me, please contact me at 231-349-1046 so I may discuss with you the first step of salvation. Or if you just want to Call me for prayer. Feel free to call me anytime. Someone said, don't put your phone number out there. People are going to call you. 
I have not gotten a single call yet. It's not a problem, I don't think. God bless you. Welcome to Sunday Morning Live Fellowship. We air live every Sunday morning on our Zoom channel. Now turn with me, please, to Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. But before we read our passage, last week we did some directional talking. We stated that we should look up. We said that we should set our minds on things above. Well, today we're going to continue with directional thinking, and we are going to discover how to keep God at our center, as opposed to making all the stuff that the world offers us as our center. This this world offers us a multitude of choices. Every week we have a new movie that's released. Every minute there's a new YouTube video, a new social media update every second, and a fresh set of Instagram in images with every pull down to refresh gesture. As our center, what I mean is this this is the age of the image. It's the age of our, of engaging our eyes and our ears, and we are constantly bombarded with every kind of image imaginable. So this eye-ear tension poses massive challenges for anyone trying to keep God in the center. Wow. That's, that's a huge challenge and our task that we are going to discover for today. Um, we're going to read our scripture, but before we do, I just want to make note that my son has just arrived and he's probably going to, when he leaves, uh, going to walk in front of the camera. So you don't have to wonder who that is. That's my baby. He's going to be 40 in April. Amen. Let's turn to our scripture. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you. So as not to destroy you completely, see, I have refined you though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Let us pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your mercy. Right now, God, we're thanking you for your glory that you have allowed us to share, but we can only partake of your glory when we make you the center of our being. God, we pray for all those names that are on our prayer list today, and they are many 
touch everyone. Some are preparing for surgery. Some recently had surgery. Some are recovering from COVID-19 and all sorts of complications that went along with that. Some are recovering from pneumonia. Some are recovering from broken ribs. God, we are praying even for that one that fell on yesterday and ended up with broken ribs. Those that are sick, God, we pray in the name of Jesus. We pray for those that have lost Loved ones, oh, God, the difficulty of losing that one that was inside of us but is still in our heart but gone from us physically. We can no longer get their phone calls. We can no longer call them. God, mend those hearts that feel as though something has been yanked tragically and torn from their very being. Pray for those that are recovering from strokes. Pray for those, oh God, that are just going through. We thank you. Now, God, we pray for your servant. Hallelujah. Oh God, let it be all of you and none of me. Oh God, we sit down that you would stand up. We thank you for this opportunity to share your word. But oh God, open our eyes. Open our spiritual eyes and ears that we would hear what thus saith the Lord. We thank you, God, and we give you all the glory in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. My, my, my. I want to use as a topic this morning, for God's sake. For God's sake. So what do we mean by saying that we must make God our center? For one, let me ask you this. What is number one in your life? What is your highest priority? So much of what we put most of our focus on, it seems hard, harmless. It's fun at the time until we realize that everything we gaze upon, everything we set our mind on, will eventually want something from us. Everything we make our center will make a demand on us. So what do our spectacles want from us? This, I think, is a huge reality that a lot of us fail to see. The truth is that whatever we make a priority provoke something in us in order to extract something from us. Our center asks us for all sorts of things, our time, our attention, my God, our outrage, our lust, our affections, 
our money, even our votes. Every picture, every video, every virtual tweet brings before us needs, expectations, and desires. They're all asking for something in return. So what is God asking for in return? By being our center, does God only want us to testify about what he does? Hmm. I feel there is so much more than testifying about what God does for God being our center. I even think God being our center means more than what's going on in our churches. Making God our center is even more than about God's people. But at the same time, please don't forget that God is very much interested in his people and his church. So, as we consider making God our center, the question becomes, is God for us or is he for himself? Someone is already saying, well, of course he's for us. Romans 8 and 31 says what? Then shall we say in response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, God is for us, but God is also for himself. Let's look at our text one more time. God is charging his people for their rebelliousness, their corruption, their hard-heartedness, and necks, necks of steel. But God relents in his judgment, and he does so for a particular reason. And that's expressed in verses 9 through 11. Listen, over and over we hear God say, for my name's sake, for my own sake. He says it again, for my own sake. How should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. It sounds to me like God is for God. Unmistakably, God is God-centered in this text. Uppermost in God's affection is himself. But then we have to look at the other side. God is angry but he is deferring his anger. He's not cutting the people off, which tells us God is for his people. So what's the relationship between God being God-centered or God being for himself and God being for his people? I think the answer is that God must be at the center of our being. He must be at the center of his people, and he must be at the center of his church. If you put anything else in the center of your being where God belongs, even if it's people, even if it's the church, even if it's a ministry, 
your center will not hold. What's in your center? Family? Ministry? Work? Entertainment? Leisure? Or yourself? These things are not bad, but must never exist where God belongs. God enhances his own reputation. God demands to be praised. God makes a name for himself at every turn. He is angry when he is ignored or dishonored. He puts himself forward as the wisest and best of beings. He says that there is no treasure above him. He is relentlessly God-exalting. Let's look at Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. God created us for his glory. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we were created to reflect, enhance, and magnify the glory of God. Now, when I say we are to magnify God's glory, let me make a distinction between a telescope and a microscope. When we say magnify, you could mean to make something small look big. That's not what we mean when we magnify God. But if you use your heart like a telescope, you don't try to make something small look big. You try to make something unimaginably huge look like what it really is. That's what we mean when we magnify God. We were created to magnify God like a telescope, not like a microscope. Jeremiah 13 and 11, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. He chose them and made them, these people in this text, to cling to him that they might be his glory. Psalms 106, 7, and 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Did you hear it? He saved them for his name's sake. Why did Jesus come into the world? Romans 15, 7 and 8, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And why is Jesus coming back again? 2 Thessalonians 1 and 10, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. 
Beloved, Jesus is coming back to be marveled at. That's why he's coming. He's coming back to be glorified. God exalts himself continually. Everything he does is to display his glory and to preserve his honor as a loving and good God. Now, someone is asking, doesn't 1 Corinthians 13 and 5 say love does not insist on its own way? You know, we got some Bible scholars here. And are you telling us that God seeks his own glory in everything he does? How can he be a God of love if he is also self-exalting? Well, I'm glad you asked. All, think about this, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their spouse. Readers praise their favorite author. Joggers praise the countryside. Athletes praise their favorite game. Some people especially as you get older, praise the weather. That's all we talk about. Some people praise how good food is, art, actors, animals, colleges, countries, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, even politicians. We praise what we delight to do and what we hold as value. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment, the expression of how good something is completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. In other words, genuine heartfelt praise is the consummation and completion of our delight in God. Praise is the completion of our enjoyment, and that enjoyment is not complete until it is expressed. God's delight is completed when we praise his perfection. Now think about this. God gives us his best. And what is his best? God is best. There's no greater beauty, no greater power, no greater wisdom, no greater love, no greater goodness, no greater justice, no greater anything good and beautiful in the universe. Nothing is greater than God himself. If he were to give you all the health and wealth and prosperity in the world minus himself, you would have nothing. He must give us himself so we can enjoy him and love him to our fullest. 
He has to remain our center. God being eager for you to praise him is love and the essence of his self-exaltation. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act. If you and I try to exalt ourselves, it would be sin. That's exactly what Satan tempted Adam and Eve to do. He told Adam and Eve, you will be like God, independent, able to decide for yourself what is good and evil. You will be able to put yourself forward as worthy of admiration. Beloved, God is in a class all by himself. He is God. He is infinitely glorious. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I got that from C.S. Lewis. So what does this mean? And the theme is from Jonathan Edwards. I don't think anything is, is, is original. Someone asked me, why don't you, uh, I don't know, do something with your sermons and then for people to listen to them. They have to pay a percentage. I can't do that because I've studied someone else. Amen. I shouldn't get the percentage. I don't know anything. So most of this is coming from Jonathan Edwards. And the quote I just gave is from C.S. Lewis. So what? What does it mean? It means, first, that all the divine energy that goes into upholding and displaying the glory of God also goes into upholding that same glory is used to uphold God's people. Because you having joy is the highest expression of God's glory and worth in your life. <clears throat> He is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. I know I'm right. Nehemiah 8 and 10 says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Here's the second implication. The first one was that God is most magnified when we are most satisfied in him. Therefore, if you are indifferent, to being satisfied in God, you have sinned. Oh, my God. So we are talking about keeping God at our center, for God's sake. So I guess the answer is more worship, right? Hmm. Can we worship the worship experience and turn the worship of God around so that we, the people, are being entertained and exalted? Church, is it really God who is at our center? Or is it our experiences about God that's at our center? What God does? How do we avoid the danger of worshiping the experiences of what God does and not God, our flesh and the devil are 
so against authentic, intimate communion and engagement with the living God. We must make sure we are getting through the church service, getting through the prayer service, getting through the worship experience that we are engaging God Almighty, that we go beyond the experience. Is God at the center of our church? Or are are we having church out of duty? Are we having church out of obligation? Are we having church because this is where I belong and this is where my membership is and, and I'm connected to this church and the people here, or are we connected to God? Am I here because there is nothing in the world that satisfies my soul the way God does? Oh, my God. And in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, at this point, some may be content, and, 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 and you know, I, I've heard enough. I've heard enough on this subject, and I think I understand what it means to make God our center. And, 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 and okay, now I know why God does what he does. But others, may, may, I know I did, may want to press a little deeper. What, what, what does it mean? that God does everything for his glory and for his namesake and for his praise. Let's unpack this meaning of God-centeredness just a little bit more. First, let's look at just a few more points. The glory of God includes the manifestation or display of God's attributes, and perfections. Let me say that again. The glory of God includes the manifestation. This is his glory. It it, it includes him displaying his perfections and his attributes. God's attributes, his wisdom, his power, his justice, his mercy, his faithfulness, and the majesty of his redemption are God's revealed acts. His creation, his providence, and and redemption. This is the manifestation and the revelation of God's glory. But to continue on with this, God's glory is more than just the display of that glory. It also includes the creaturely, in other words, you and I, it, it includes the knowledge that results from the display of his glory. In other words, God's got to have an audience. There's an audience for the manifestation of God's perfections and his knowledge, and, and the audience is part of the glory. If, if God's glory isn't known, then his purpose in creation is incomplete. Number three, not just the display of his perfections, not just him 
having an audience, but also it must include the creaturely or us loving and delighting in his perfection. It's not enough to to for us to know that God is wise. It's not enough for us to know that God is all powerful and faithful and just. God wants us to taste it. Oh taste and see that he is good. We must love and delight in God's perfections the same way that he does. The display of divine perfection and knowledge um, and love and delight in the divine perfections and all that these include in the glorification of God. We must experience it. God communicates his fullness to his creatures. And God has invited us to participate in his fullness through redemption, through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can have firsthand knowledge of his love, of his knowledge, of his joy, and come to exist in us. Through Jesus, we have literally become partakers of God's divine nature. And this truth, that God is God-centered and therefore does everything that he does in order to glorify himself, hallelujah, by sharing the riches and fullness of his divine life with us, this is good news in this crazy world. When we are God-centered, we have the very foundation to remain standing when everything around us is crumbling. When we have God at our center, when we seek his glory and not the glory of this world and not the glory of ourselves, we will become satisfied and content when God is at our center. No matter what whirlwind is going on around us, we will be stable in the midst of the storm because we are most satisfied in him and his glory will keep us satisfied and anchored. If you have not received Jesus Christ, the revelation of the glory of God, God became a human being so that we could partake in his glory. All he asks is that we acknowledge that we are sinners without him, and to repent for our sins, and to receive Jesus Christ by faith. He became one of us so that we could become like him. Don't say that you want to wait until you're good enough. You will never be good enough. We cannot self-exalt 
Only God is self-exalting. Make God your center by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're ready, pray this prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have done many things that don't please you. I have lived my life for myself only. I am sorry and I repent. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died on the cross for me to save me. You did what I could not do for myself. I come to you now and ask you to take control of my life. I give it to you. From this day forward, help me to live every day for you in a way that pleases you. If you prayed that simple prayer with me, please contact me at 231-349-1046 so I may discuss with you the first steps of salvation. Or if you just want to call me for prayer, feel free to call me anytime. Someone said, don't put your phone number out there. People are going to call you. I have not gotten a single call yet. It's not a problem. I don't think. God bless you.